A study from the United Nations International Labor Organization estimated that in 2016, 3.8 million adults and 1 million children were victims of forced sexual exploitation. And in 2019, the State Department found that the United States was one of the top three nations of origin for human trafficking victims. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Preview of Tomorrow. I am your host, Mike Lake. In today's preview, we will explore the grim reality of human trafficking and what is being done to eradicate it as I speak with Rochelle Cahan, founder and CEO of Collective Liberty, about her extensive experience combating the unspeakable atrocities of human trafficking and the challenges that law enforcement agencies have to address it. Innovation, resiliency, discovery. Join Mike Lake, President and CEO of Leading Cities, as we explore the technologies shaping the possibilities of our future with a preview of tomorrow. Welcome, Rochelle, and thank you so much for coming. For our listeners, Rochelle Cahan is an accomplished attorney, CEO, and an award-winning human trafficking and criminal justice expert. Her company, Collective Liberty, operates at multiple levels to combat sex trafficking by targeting traffickers and dismantling their networks. Now, Rochelle, before we dive into Collective Liberty uh, and, and the specifics around this horrifying challenge that we face, tell us a little bit about what you see as one of the biggest challenges facing our communities over the next five or 10 years. Um, that's a really great question and it's hard to pick one answer. So I think it, when you think about human trafficking, most people think of sex trafficking. And in that regard, one of the biggest challenges is how the internet, social media, social networking has really proliferated sexual abuse online and made it really difficult to control and stop. But then labor trafficking is the other component of human trafficking. And it's actually the majority of trafficking happening in our country and the world. And we're barely sort of figuring it out as a nation. So if you look at the number of prosecutions across the country, there's estimated over 40 billion million trafficking victims each year, and we're only doing like 800, 900 prosecutions. That's mostly sex trafficking. We're barely touching the labor trafficking. So I would say the internet really empowering sex trafficking and our enforcement mechanisms really figuring out labor trafficking are the two biggest challenges I see in our future and our present. I'll be honest with you, Rochelle. Until we first met, I had no idea how how huge an issue this really is right here in America, but globally. Um, I, I did look in and, and found that the State Department uh, lists that United States, Mexico, and the Philippines are the three top nations of origin for human trafficking victims. Um, it was shocking to me to think that the United States was at the top of that list. Um, so this is this is an issue that exists. It's around all of us, and we don't really know it. Is that right? Absolutely. We do data and intelligence analysis support for investigations around the country, and it's not just in New York or LA. It's in every city, rural, urban, suburban. It doesn't matter. The only it's basically the volume 
is commensurate to the population so that it meets demand. So rural probably has less than New York City, but it's in every community that we exist in right now in the U.S. And, and you said, and I think that's right, when most of us hear the word human trafficking or the words human trafficking, we do think sex trafficking. Can you give us a, a, a sense of some of the profiles, I guess you could call it, of trafficking that exist? Absolutely. So I think the thing people are most familiar with is sex trafficking a la the movie Taken, right? Where a suburban girl got kidnapped and taken across international borders to be sex trafficked or sold on the dark web. That does happen, but it's not even remotely close to the majority of the types of trafficking. Um, so the profiles for sex trafficking are typically someone befriending and either befriending romantically or non-romantically and building a relationship with the person they intend to victimize and then eventually victimizing it. It's something people call grooming. And then also there's deliberate force. The one, the, sh the most shocking sex trafficking type that people aren't really aware of and don't want to think about is familial trafficking. And it's actually incredibly common where family members traffic children in their family. But then when it comes to labor trafficking, that's really truly all around us. The people on visas to be working in agriculture or some restaurants are often exploited. In nail salons, you'll often see exploitation and labor trafficking. Um, the extractives industry in our nation, oil, minerals, um, that has an abundance of trafficking. One of the most alarming that I've seen is the meat processing industry. We all, it's, it's had decades of trafficking indications throughout various companies in the meat processing industry, but the labor trafficking is so vital to our national supply chains that we lighten restrictions on labor rights quite often to make sure that our, our supply chains are met. So it creates industry where exploitation is kind of easy to flourish. Um, and we don't always pay attention because it's making sure that we can afford the chicken in the grocery store. And that's what we're paying attention to. Wow. I, I want to come back to something else you, you mentioned of, of the millions of, of cases that exist he said that only 800 or 900 are actually prosecuted. How, how is that possible? So right now, the United States, I think across the world, actually, it's true. The investment in technology for building out these cases, for collecting data proactively, for proactively identifying this exploitation, it's not sufficient investment. So it's really difficult for law enforcement to be identifying traffickers when the traffickers have been using sophisticated technology in abundance and we're way behind the mark. Also, traffickers are operating across jurisdictional lines. What that means is they're not just operating in Houston, Texas, right? They're in Houston, LA, New York, and rural counties in between. But the law enforcement in each of those places is jurisdictionally bound and they're responsive to their county, their city. So they don't have all the data from all of those other connecting points. So unless they're directly collaborating and sharing information, they have like indicators or small hints or weak cases in their jurisdiction because the broader case is much bigger than just one city. So when you think about it, by, by, able, by being able to better 
track and analyze the data that's available and shared, uh, I'm assuming it obviously makes it a lot easier. Um, and by, as, as you described, going after the networks, not just, you know, an individual case, it, it's not just, although this is obviously important, it's not just about seeking justice, but it's also the best way to prevent it to happening to another victim. So it's as much preventative as it is reactive and justice seeking. Is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. It's definitely true. We want to stop the exploitation that's actively happening, as well as all of the potential future victims that are in the pipeline for that recruitment and abuse. Absolutely. So I, I want to hear a little bit more now about collective liberty and, and what it is that you're doing specifically to, to help with this situation. Absolutely. So. My background is as a prosecutor. I became a prosecutor in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia specifically. The same year the state created an official criminal offense for human trafficking. So I grew up alongside the law and the way it works is you just sort of figure it out. And if there's not decades or centuries worth of investigative best practices and case law that's really well established on how the law should be interpreted and applied, you're just winging it. And there weren't resources. There's not a robust data. There wasn't a network of investigators or prosecutors expert in this. There's not trainings for judges still to this day. And it's been about a decade. Um, and for a law, that's really infant, right? And I realized that this isn't sustainable and we're leaving victims behind and the burden is falling on individual detectives and individual prosecutors for an issue that's way above anything they can solve. So since I couldn't find a solution for that cross-jurisdictional data collection or tech-driven intelligence analysis to really build the links necessary in those cases, or networks to connect people across jurisdictional boundaries so that they could share information and build the cases, I just realized one day, I guess I have to make it. <laughs> so that's how we were born. And that's our main focus, our three main focus. So you mentioned a lot of the resources that law enforcement does not have. Yes. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around how do, without you, how have they been doing this or not, I guess? Yeah, it's been a lot of manual effort, um, reinventing the wheel with each case, starting from scratch, doing a lot of Googling, doing a lot of searching, doing a lot of telephone to other jurisdictions and just manually building the case. So I remember if I had like 70 cases in my caseload and two of them were trafficking, those two together would take more energy than the other 68 combined. So it really was on the investigator to go well above and beyond or the prosecutor to work way more hours to try to get it done. And as we all know, if there's data that's collected and structured for a computer to analyze, it's going to be more efficient and it's also going to be more accurate. So they... They've been doing their best, they're still doing their best, but it's very manual and limited in what they have access to. Now, just a quick aside, but is it true that victims can also be arrested for the crimes they were forced to commit? It is true, and it happens quite a bit right now. And that kind of goes back to, so for example, they're often arrested for adjacent crimes like drug possession, gun possession, prostitution, um, being undocumented. And 
we've been investigating and prosecuting those cases for like over a hundred years, right? So we know exactly what it looks like, how to spot it right away, how to build the case, and we're comfortable with that. So that does end up being the default quite often. And I think that that's one of the biggest motivators, aside from all of the other systemic issues that I mentioned for our work is we get that you're comfortable with that. Here's this new area of law. We need to get comfortable with this because we're still arresting victims and we got to shift. It's got to be that the 800 traffickers we're arresting is going 10x each year and the number of victims is hopefully stopping. We're not arresting them at all anymore. So draw me a picture of, you know, if, if collective liberty were to start operating in my community or any community, what does that mean uh, for the people you're working with or for the community at large? How does that come to be and what does it look like, the actual day-to-day? -day? Yeah, absolutely. So the communities we work with now, it strongly involves infusing data and intelligence analysis support to augment what law enforcement's already doing. And that also supports the community's education so that it's not generic or a national snapshot, but also hyper-local relevant information for what's happening in your community. Um, for example, Native communities are really overrepresented in trafficking victims, but that's not necessarily true everywhere in the country because it's based on population, right? So we can't make sweeping statements and claim that it applies everywhere. So this helps us give really specific local information and it leads to a better, more trained law enforcement, more consequences for traffickers and more support and empowerment for the victims and survivors. Well, I mean, that is transformational, to say the least, especially for the victims or would-be victims um, that are saved from this because of your work. I, you know, in my last question, give us a sense of 20, 30 years from now, collective liberty is working with law enforcement agencies everywhere. What, what does that mean uh, for the world at large? It means that we have stronger workplace protections in place to prevent human trafficking in the labor field. And it also means that there are robust reporting mechanisms for exploitation online, as well as a real national understanding of the nuanced definitions of human trafficking so that people can identify when it's happening and hopefully we won't see it anymore. And so that was going to be my last question, but you just said something important. Is, are there some quick things that our listeners should know to they could be looking for any signs of human trafficking? Definitely. Um, I would say, for example, when you're getting services, service-based work, if you're in a community where it costs 20 bucks for a manicure and they're charging seven, pay attention to stuff going on. If the manicurist doesn't seem to know what they're doing and it's really underpriced, that's important. So look at the value of what you're getting for what you're paying compared to other stuff. And you really can start quickly identifying the potential exploitation that might be happening. That's really helpful. Well, listen, thank you so much uh, for your time. But really, I mean, the work you're doing is literally changing lives and saving lives. So uh, I can't thank you enough for that. Tell anybody who wants to, to learn more about collective liberty, the social justice that you're seeking and, and the impact that you're having in communities, how, how do they learn more or, or reach out to you? 
Yes, absolutely, please. Um, so our general work can be viewed at collectiveliberty.org and we have social channels with daily updates. And then the more Intel focused work is at htfusion.org. And if you wanna collect, connect with us or collaborate in any way, you can email us at info at collectiveliberty.org. Michelle Cahan, thank you so much. Uh, we look forward to your many, many successes and, and to see more of these prosecutions uh, come to bear so that this problem can truly be addressed and, and resolved. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Preview of Tomorrow. In addition to thanking our guest, I want to thank Peter Roy and Demetria Bridges for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and encourage others to also join us each week in previewing the possibilities of tomorrow. Preview of Tomorrow is brought to you by Leading Cities, a global nonprofit driving resilience and sustainability for all by unleashing the potential of the world's cities. Join them at leadingcities.org.